people tend to, to value folks in this world who like to keep the peace. But, you know, when you think about it, a startup is a provocative act. A yeah. startup, by definition, says, I think that the way things are done is the wrong way. And so I believe that a lot of the great startup founders naturally tend to gravitate to thinking and acting in ways that are a little bit, a little bit disagreeable, a little bit, I've got the gleam of the pirate in my eye. I've got, you know, I sort of enjoy the prospect of stirring the pot and, and breaking a few things here and there. And so I think that there is a, and, and that can be true in the realm of ideas as well as activities, right? Like a lot of times I find that the best founders are not naturally inclined to believe that the status quo is that they, they tend to, they tend to be willing to argue against things that other people just take for granted. And they tend to naturally gravitate to thinking that the current way isn't the best way. I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, leaders, and people looking for high performance in business and in life. Now, each week, I sit down with one of the world's most successful people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, mindsets, and habits that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. And if you want access to over 300 episodes and insights with game changers and change makers, head to whatgotyouthere.com, where you can also subscribe to my Momentum Monday newsletter. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you. Hey guys, today on the podcast, I sit down with investor Mike Maples Jr. Now, Mike is a co-founding partner at Floodgate, and he has been on the Forbes Midas list eight times in the last decade. And he was also named a rising star by Fortune and profiled by Harvard Business School for his lifetime contributions to entrepreneurship. Now, before becoming a full-time investor, Mike was involved as a founder and operating executive at back-to-back startup IPOs, including Tivoli Systems and Motive. Now, some of Mike's investments include Twitter, Twitch.tv, Clover Health, Okta, and Chegg, just to name a few. Now, on this episode, we dive into the key insights that Mike looks for in investments, what really separates great founders from okay ones, and why reckless optimism has been foundational to Mike's success. Please enjoy this episode with Mike Maples Jr. Hey, it's Sean, and after personally coaching CEOs, executives, and professional athletes for more than a decade, and also interviewing over 300 of the world's most successful people on this podcast, I have compiled the most important mindsets, routines, and skills you need to cultivate to skyrocket the success in your own life. Now, I've done this by creating a 19-video lecture online personal development course called You Unleashed. Now, these lectures include how to overcome limiting beliefs and fears that you have, how to develop your personal routine for high performance, and mapping out what your foundational life principles and values are. Now, this course has a proven curriculum where I will teach you everything I've learned from high achievers about how to live a more fulfilling life. Now, you can get exclusive access to this course by clicking the link below or going to whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. That's whatgotyouthere.com forward slash you dash unleashed. Have you been looking for expert on-demand marketing assistance for your business? If so, then I think you're going to be interested in hearing about Marketer Hire. Now, Marketer Hire has made it easy to hire great marketers that are pre-vetted and hand-matched so you can get proven help with your business in less than a week. That's why it's trusted by big companies like Chanel, Netflix, and Puma, and also individual creators like myself. Whatever your marketing hire needs are, Marketer Hire has an expert waiting to help you with your project. It doesn't matter if you're looking to build out an entire team of marketers or just work with an expert marketer a few hours a week. Marketer Hire can handle your needs. And the best part, if you sign up using the link try.marketerhire.com forward slash WGYT, you get an automatic $500 credit to try out on your first hire. It's literally risk-free hiring and no downside with no long-term commitments and no cancellation fees. So go get your $500 credit today by going to try.marketerhire.com forward slash WGYT. Hey guys, it's Sean and I have some exciting news. We have a new sponsor of the show today and that's Caldera Lab. So it's time to say goodbye to the generic face wash on your counter because Caldera Lab is here to save the day when it comes to your skin. Now it's backed by a leading clinical trial where nine out of 10 men experienced healthier and visibly improved skin. Caldera Lab really does have the tools to unlock your best first impression, 
and confidence. And if you're like me and you're constantly looking for high-performance men's skincare that's vetted by science, packed with nature's most pure and potent ingredients, then Caldera Lab is exactly what you're looking for. Now, that's why I've been using Caldera Lab's regimen twice a day. Now, this routine helps me cleanse my skin, moisturize it throughout the day, and then reduce the visibility of wrinkles and fine lines. Now, I heard about Caldera Lab from NFL Hall of Famer Tony Gonzalez. And after trying it, I actually reached out to Caldera Lab and I said, you guys need to come on the podcast as a sponsor because your stuff works. And I have an exclusive offer just for listening to the podcast so you can try it for yourself and find out why so many men trust Caldera Lab for their skincare needs. So just use code Delaney at calderalab.com for 20% off their best products. So just for listening to the podcast, you get 20% off today by using code Delaney. That's D-E-L-A-N-E-Y at calderalab.com. Mike, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I can't complain. Thanks for having me. I love that. You always seem to have an optimistic approach. Is, is that something that just came naturally wired in you? I guess that I'm probably temperamentally well-suited to startups, right? Because startups are impossible. And you just almost, you almost can't do the job hmm. if you're not recklessly optimistic. In fact, I've got a sign in my office here, practice reckless optimism, which was given to me by uh, Dom Zane, who's one of the founders that I worked with on around. And so, uh, yeah, I suppose that I'm guilty of being, op you know, all things being equal, I'm probably more optimistic than most. Is that one of the key things you're looking at when a new entrepreneur walks in front of you, walks into your room to pitch? Is that what you're thinking about? How much optimism do they have? Well, to, to, some, to some degree, I, I'd say that there's, here's the main thing I look for. And, and, and there's that movie where the guy says, I have a particular set of skills. I have a particular set of interests that may may overlap with some people in your audience, but, but maybe not everybody. So like startups are not normal at all, especially the ones I care about. Mm -hmm. And most businesses are a going concern. They have a business, they have a business model, they have customer supply chains. They're trying to build a sustainable moat. And those are precisely the types of companies I don't invest in. Mm -hmm. So like I, I invest in companies that are an affront to the status quo. I invest in companies that don't want to have a fair fight, that want to be David against Goliath, that want to not acknowledge the current rules, but want to change the subject. I like to call these startups pattern breakers. And so, you know, the human mind is a pattern matching system. And without even knowing that we do it, we assume certain things that are true about the world. And what great founders do, at least the ones I like to work with, they propose a new pattern. They say, hey, no, taxis aren't the way to get from point A to point B. We should do ride-sharing apps. So they, and, and in order to break the pattern, you have to succeed at two things. One is you have to have a pattern-breaking idea, an insight about the future that's not obvious, but that can change the rules. And then the second thing you want is a pattern-breaking founder. And, you know, pattern-breaking founders have to be willing to challenge the status quo, and they have to be willing to pursue the, their mission, sometimes at all costs, especially because the president is going to fight back, mm -hmm. right? And the, the status quo, status is part of the status quo. They value their status and they find your efforts to subvert their status offensive. Mm -hmm. And you need, you need a founder who has the courage to be disliked by the people who should dislike them and a founder who can rally the people who believe in their secret to start a movement. And so those are the, those are the main, you know, optimism's part of it, but like optimism to me is a word that it reminds me of the word passion, right? If you're not careful, you can have misdirected passion. You can have misdirected optimism. What you're really trying to do is find somebody with a very deliberate idea of a different future of their design mm -hmm. and who's prepared to do what it takes to make that come true. Mike, out of those two, the idea and the founder, which one is more rare? I would say that they're 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 actually both quite rare. Mm. The main thing that I would say is that uh, business is never a fair fight. If you if you're trying to engage in a fair fight in business, you're already lost because the other guy's going to fight unfair, whether you know it or not. And so the default position in this world is that the status quo has an unfair advantage. The status quo has the inertia of the present pattern of how the world works. And everybody just naturally assumes that the way they define things is the way things work. Mm -hmm. 
And so if you're going to have a breakthrough, you have to break free of the status quo. You can't be better than the status quo because if you're better than the status quo, you're, you're acknowledging their rules are valid about how to compete. And they're going to, they're going to usually beat you in that game because mm -hmm. they get to define the rules and they've, they've defined them from the first place. And so what you want to do when you're a breakthrough startup is you break free from the current rules by having an idea that just changes the subject that refuse to, refuses to buy into the premise, the rules. Hey, I'm not going to participate in the taxi medallion system. I think it's bullshit. I think it's intellectually bankrupt and corrupt. We're just simply not going to even negotiate with that. We're going to propose something that just blows it up and redefines our very idea, our very notion of how to get around. And so the idea is really important. Like a great founder with a not so great idea is always going to be limited because they're going to be trapped in the gravitational pull of the incumbency gotcha. and the rules of the incumbents, right? But great ideas that don't have someone who can actualize those ideas, they don't happen in this world, right? So you have to have, you have to go from having a pattern-breaking idea to engaging in the types of pattern-breaking behaviors that are necessary to overcome the resistance of the presence. Mike, the present. yeah, in all your experience, what do you think comes first? Does the founder tend to have these type of ideas first? And then they develop the skills to be able to bring that to fruition. Or are they the embodiment of this type of founder you're looking for and the ideas come later? Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I think about this a lot. I, I guess to me, over time, I've started to realize that breakthrough startups are a fundamentally disagreeable notion. And people tend to, to value folks in this world who like to keep the peace. But, you know, when you think about it, a startup is a provocative act. A yeah. startup, by definition, says, I think that the way things are done is the wrong way. And so I believe that a lot of the great startup founders naturally tend to gravitate to thinking and acting in ways that are a little bit, a little bit disagreeable, a little bit, I've got the gleam of the pirate in my eye. I've got, you know, I sort of enjoy the prospect of stirring the pot and and breaking a few things here and there. And so I think that there is a, and, and that can be true in the realm of ideas as well as activities, right? Like a lot of times I find that the best founders are not naturally inclined to believe that the status quo is that good. Mm -hmm. they, they, tend to, they tend to be willing to argue against things that other people just take for granted. And they tend to naturally gravitate to thinking that the current way isn't the best way. Mm -hmm. And then and then that same personality trait can often cause them to be willing to in, engage in the types of behaviors that you have to engage in where your social status is threatened, where your respectability is threatened. Because like, we haven't really gotten into this, but like Brian Chesky, who unfortunately I foolishly didn't invest in, funded Air Bed and Breakfast in the early days, right? What became Airbnb by selling Obama O's cereal. Mm -hmm and Captain McCain Crunch cereal. That's not a normal way to do business. And that's not a normal, that's not on the list of options that most people would consider. You know, Osman Rashid, who I did work with at Chegg, ran up three and a half million dollars of credit card expenses buying textbooks because he couldn't, we couldn't raise money to, to buy them with venture capital. All we had was floodgate seed money, but we, we were gonna need to raise tens of millions and so, you know, Amex eventually starts a column and says, hey, what's this, what are you, this, you know, young Pakistani doing buying three and a half million dollars of textbooks? And, you know, he ended up having to have like 10 Amex credit cards because you can only swipe an Amex credit card once every seven seconds. So he convinced the customer service rep to give him 10 cards. Well, now, now they're like, okay, well, if this company goes bankrupt, we're going to be on the hook for these creditors for these textbooks. And so they're about to shut him down. And Osman kind of tells a little bit of a white lie and says, well, no, actually, we're, we're creating a library. And, uh, and Osman's like, well, you know, it's kind of a library. You know, we classify the books. They go on a shelf. They could be checked in and checked out. It's kind of, technically speaking, it's kind of a library. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of, you know, Lyft, when they launched the Lyft service, it was illegal. And so, you know, they were getting cease and desist letters every day. Hmm. And, and the, the question is, is San Francisco going to shut us down before we ever have a chance to, mm. to make a meaningful difference. And so, you know, most, yeah, Justin Kahn, before they started Justin TV, which became Twitch, he sold his first company, Kaiko, on eBay 
for $250,000 to two cows. Like, who does that? Yeah. And so part of this type of behavior is a willingness to act differently than how normal people act and, and understand, you know, embracing that because you're going you're gonna to have to do some things. You can't achieve outsized results in life by doing the things that other people do. You have to do things radically different than what other people do. Mm. That's, you've had Howard, Howard Marks on your show. He would argue the same is true in investing. You, you can't outperform the consensus yeah. by being the consensus. You have to be non-consensus and right, yeah. or you can't outperform. Yeah. This makes me think about you and your embodiment of who you are. Does this come through in your investment approach? Because everything you're, you're describing, Mike, it, it makes me think of a story from when you were back in college and how the social status was essentially threatened for you. And I'm wondering what you did during that time. Yeah. Part of why I decided to become an investor was I, I'm actually a pretty agreeable person. I was a I was a founder, but like my roommate in college was this guy named Joe Lemont, who's a Forbes 400 billionaire, way better executive than I am. And um, and, and part, part of the reason that he's way better at it is he's just not afraid to piss people off. Hmm. He's not worried about what you think about him. If, if, if you think that he has good manners or not or whatever, whereas everywhere I've ever been, I was, uh, had lots of friends and got along with folks. And if I'm in a meeting and somebody's there who I'm not hundred percent sure needs to be there, I'm not usually that guy who's going to say, Hey, I don't know what, who you are, what you do, please leave. Hmm. Whereas like Steve Jobs, that's what he did all the time. Right. And, and, but what I, what I think I, can do is I think I really understand what makes these types of people tick. And I understand the struggles they go through. And I have a, a level of sympathy for what they go through that I think makes me effective at spotting them, spotting them and their ideas. Because in some ways, I'm spotting something that I wish I could do, that I wish I had the temperament to do, hmm. but that, you know, I know I'm just not going to be crazy enough the way they would be to do it. Mike, I'm intrigued by this. I'm always looking for when the people's natural authenticity aligns with those skills, right? Like you were saying, yeah. the embodiment of who you are really aligning with picking unbelievable companies. When did you feel that merger, the blending of those two, where you were really comfortable in who you were as an individual and your unique skill sets and that blending of those two? Yeah, well, I think from a young age, like for, for some reason, I got this notion when I was really young that there's this great paradox in life that the fact that you get to live at all is amazing when you think about it, right? It's a miracle, but we're all, we're all going to die unless, unless something happens that I don't know about that we invent, but I'm, I'm, I'm not betting on it, right? So it's, it's sad that we're going to die, that our time's limited, but it's a miracle that we have any time. And so then you start to realize that the time that you do have is a gift. And that really what you should do every day is try to honor the gift of your time. And the, the best way I know how to honor the gift of your time is to, is to figure out the highest purpose use of your own skills, your own passions, your own capabilities. And part of that requires you to be self-aware and to know where you can make a difference where you can't. Too many people, I think, aspire to be like somebody else. And I think that really the best that you can do is to try to be your best self and not not try to be like somebody else. And, and your best self is a function of who you are and how you want to honor the gift of your time and realizing that you're not going to get that time back. Once today goes by, you that day's gone. All you've got is the N minus one future days. Mike, there was a line I had saved from you when I was doing the research for this. And it's, I like to emphasize to people when they start a company, start a company that's worthy of your talents that you think represents the absolute utmost gift you have to offer to this world in your life. I thought that was incredibly powerful. I'm wondering, when young founders come to you, how do you uncover that, right? I feel like so many people might think, how do I even begin to understand what my greatest gift is? How do you, how do you navigate that for a younger entrepreneur? Yeah, usually, you know, it's funny. A lot of times, there, well, there's a few questions that I ask, right? Some of them relate to the idea and some of them relate to the founder, right? So the, the first thing I'm trying to do is to understand do I believe that they had the right motivations and intentions behind this idea, right? So like a lot of people, they just want to do a startup. And, you know, they, they read articles about founders and they see Zuckerberg or Elon Musk on the cover of a magazine and they think, I want to be like that. And that's, that's a terrible reason why do startups, because startups are impossible, right? And, and uh, most people, if they had any idea what they were getting themselves into, they'd never do it. So like, why are they doing this? And you brought up a quote that I that I said once, most of the founders that I've seen 
have real breakthroughs, have massive outcomes, are those who have an idea that's from the future that embraces a set of inflections that allow them to just show up with a product that totally changes the subject. And so the first thing I'm trying to find out from a founder is, how did you come up with this idea? And do I believe that this, the, the way you went about coming up with this idea suggests that this, that this project has a chance to have massive impact, that it can break free from the present, that it can impose a new order on things. And, and we can delve into any of these topics, right? I explore what is the inflection that underlies the idea. I explore uh, what is their fundamental insight and why is it not consensus and right? And then the other question I like to ask is, is this from the future? And so uh, are they are they living in the future already or did they just try to think of a startup? Hmm. So I like to say that paradoxically, the best startup ideas come from not trying to think of a startup. Instead, what you do is you live in the future. And as you experience firsthand what the future is like, you experience firsthand what the difficulties are in the future and you end up building what's missing in the future. Hmm. That, that's the kind of stuff I look for first. So that, all that stuff's related to the idea itself. And then I have a set of questions that I ask about the founder as well. I would love to go behind the door of one of these investment pitches. Is there any examples you have where you, you went further with a founder to really stress test their thinking? I'm just wondering what it looks like, what follow-ups you're intrigued to hear about when you're asking yeah, these so, questions. Yeah, so like, for example... Um, 85% of our profits have come from pivots, right? And, that, and that's the, the companies that worked, right? So Lyft started as Zimride, Okta started as Sasher, Twitch started as Justin.tv. And that means I have to not be too attached to my belief about whether the product that they're presenting to me is going to work. Yeah. Because if they succeed, there's an 85% likelihood that they're going to pivot. And so you, you say, okay, what am I investing in then? And, and so the first question I ask is, what are the fundamental inflections that underlie this idea? And so why do inflections matter? So an inflection is something new that gets introduced that creates a, a set of empowering conditions that an entrepreneur can harness. So like, uh, you know, we talked about Lyft a minute ago and ride sharing. With Lyft, Apple introduced the iPhone 4S and the iPhone 4S had a GPS locator chip. So now you could locate someone who had a smartphone with an algorithm within one meter. And so then you say, okay, what, wh why, who does that empower? Well, it empowers everybody with a smartphone. How many people is that? That's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And under <laughs> what conditions will that empowerment persist? Well, you'd have to believe that Apple will continue to put GPS locator chips in smartphones. You'd have to believe that the other guys will too. That seems like a reasonable bet, right? So that's the inflection. The reason that I call it inflection rather than like just performance improvement curve, like Moore's law, is that an inflection is like a turning point. And a turning point introduces the element of timing. So before the iPhone 4S, you could have been right that there's a future that embraces ride sharing, but you couldn't have built a product that delivered on that vision because you wouldn't have been able to algorithmically locate riders and drivers in real time. So only after those embedded GPS locators existed was it possible, mm. right, to implement a ride-sharing network. And timing is a big factor in these things, right? So that's the, the, the inflection. The insight is, okay, so what, right? So the inflection happens external to the startup. The insight is the entrepreneur's creative instantiation of an opportunity. It's the breakthrough discovery. So like the, the, for, for Lyft, the insight was, oh, that means you could do sharing economy for cars. And a good insight is usually non-consensus. The non-consensus part of it was, are, are people going to want to get into a stranger's car? That sounds scary. Mm -hmm. But we believed that they would because we had foolishly passed on Airbnb because we didn't think people would want to stay in a stranger's house. And uh, events proved us wrong. And so we were like, we're willing to take that risk where other people might not not take it. But the, you know, you can see that the inflection, inflection happened, whether Lyft happened, whether Uber happened, it was out there. It was in the ambient world. The insight was the, where the invention happens, where the founder says, oh, that means that I can do something that is going to propose 
a different future. Hmm. And, and the reason that the inflections are so important is that the different future that we propose needs to be radically different. And it needs to empower people in ways that overcome any inertia that the incumbents can impose on us. You, so like, I'll, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm curious right. about that, that empowerment. What does that look like to overcome that inertia? That's right. The inflection is like the rock in David's slingshot. Mm -hmm. The inflection is what lets the founder wage an unfair fight. We're not interested in having a fair fight, yeah. right? And, and we know it's going to be unfair. And so there's no middle ground. The only question is, who's going to play unfairly? Are you going to play unfairly as a startup founder? Or are you going to let the incumbent have an unfair advantage? Mm -hmm. And if you let the incumbent have an unfair advantage, you might still have success. But, but the upside will be limited in your success because mm -hmm. you'll always have to operate under the conditions that have been defined by the incumbency. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you, if you show up with a radically breakthrough product that harnesses inflections and has, proposes a radically different future, now you get to define the discussion that happens. Now you get to decide what ride sharing is and isn't. You get to decide how to, how to frame the discussion of how transportation should work. Yeah. You force other people to react to what you do. Totally different ballgame then. This has me so intrigued then. You said 85% of your successful startups were pivots. What then yeah. are you doing during those pivot periods to help them successfully navigate the pivot? Yeah, so like if you think about it, a, a breakthrough, breakthroughs are tricky because they can't be planned explicitly, right? Like you can have a recipe to bake a cake, but like if, if you and I bake a cake with the same recipe, we're gonna bake roughly the same cake apart from just, skills and cooking and stuff. But breakthroughs by definition haven't happened yet. Nobody understood the theory of relativity until Einstein discovered it. So you can't have like a, a very structured process to get to one. You have to become the type of person who's likely to get one. Mm. And so I believe that you do that by following these inflections and insights. When I work with a founder, what they really are doing is implementing a first mover advantage into the future. And the first product that they have is really a reference implementation of their insight. But the first product, the implementation might not be right. Customers might not be desperate for what they built. And so we have to answer a, a simple but profound question, which is what can we uniquely do that people are desperate for? If we have an insight, we've answered the uniqueness part. Now we have to find out what product can we build that someone will be desperate to have? And if our insight about the future is value, valid and it has massive empowerment, there should be someone desperate because it, it will offer something radically empowering to someone. And when that someone sees it, they won't be able to unsee it. So that's what we're trying to do, right? And the first version of the product might not achieve that goal. So then what we need to do is we need to ask ourselves, does that mean that it invalidates our insight or does it mean that it invalidates our implementation? And if our implementation is invalidated, then we need a new implementation. If our insight's invalidated, I think we should just stop, right? I don't think we have a business because the, the whole premise of what we're doing is wrong, has been proven wrong, right? So that's kind of what, what we do. What most people fail at when they pursue breakthroughs is they look at risk as the probability of failure. What they don't understand is that if you define it that way, you're going to pursue opportunities that are more obvious, where there's a more clear path to getting success. But what I believe is that if you have powerful inflections and insights, you don't have to know how the dots will forward connect. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is you're pursuing an underpriced but massive upside future. And you navigate your implementation to the right implementation. And usually what's beautiful about that is you're learning things that other people aren't learning. Even if you're not succeeding, you're learning what others don't learn because other people aren't brave enough to pursue those kinds of futures mm -hmm. because they're too afraid to take the risk. But you can't have massive upside without taking massive risk. It can't happen. You know, it's the same what Howard Marks would say, right? Yeah. You can't, yeah. you, you know, it, the opposite side of a coin that says can't lose might as well say can't win. Mm -hmm. So you have to, if you win big, you have to risk big yeah. by definition. Yeah. Anyone who wants to dive further into Howard's thinking, he has an incredible memo. He probably wrote a decade ago, Dare to be Great and then Dare to be Great too. That talk, the, the truly it's, exceptional. Another one more recently called I Beg to Differ, yeah. which is also. Yeah. 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 His, his stuff's incredible. Mike, you have another, this makes me think of another line I have saved to you. And it's, I'm not a risk taker outer. I'm a luck multiplier. And I'm wondering for you, 
how you've gone about increasing that surface area luck in your life and then multiplying that luck. Yeah, so I guess the way I do look at risk, you know, most people, and particularly this would be true in a big business, they look at risk as something bad and scary. I look at risk as how you behave in a world of uncertainty. Hmm. And so I think risk is something you take actively with agency. Most people don't like that. Most people don't like to take risk. They like to avoid risk. But like when you look, when you realize that risk taking is really just the willingness to pursue an unambiguous, massively high upside in, a, in an ambiguous future, the expected value, the payoff function is actually quite good. What I really invest in is very risky projects with wildly asymmetric payoff functions. So the expected value of the risk is actually higher than the risk that most people are taking when they think they're taking lower risk. Yep. So that's kind of how I look at the world. And that's how I, how I try to work with the founders. And so when I invest in a seed round, we try to get really clear about what the risks are. And we try to do as much as we can to take out the most important risks as quickly as we can. Hmm. Because if we succeed at that, we've done the number one thing we can do to add value to the company. If we don't succeed at that, either we need to find another approach or we declare it a failed experiment, but then we haven't spent millions of dollars on something that wasn't destined and the entrepreneur gets their time back. But yeah, it's risk is something you take always. Mike, at how, least in my opinion. Oh, I'm curious about your view. Where do you develop this approach to the world? So I would say that my temperament is pretty agreeable in general but I would say that my thought processes are usually pretty independent, right? So I think I'm pretty good at thinking for myself and uh, not, not always buying into the conventional logic of things. And so I try to understand startups in a very first principles way. And I came to realize over time that a startup is not a company. A startup is a provocative challenge to the status quo. And in order to succeed at making that provocative challenge real, right, you have to have these insights. And you have to create these movements to move the world to that different future. And if you're going to do those things, you have to have a different outlook towards risk. Mm. Mike, you mentioned a pretty independent thinker. What is it like in your head as you're stress testing these ideas internally? Yeah, I have a huge benefit that I get to work with some of these founders who are just like amazing, right? And like, for example, there, there's this big five framework of personality temperament. They call it OCEAN. I, I'm not sure if any of your guests have ever talked about it before, but there's OCEAN stands for openness to new experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. This framework is probably the most scientifically grounded at trying to predict someone's personality and temperament. And what I've found is that a lot of the founders that I've worked with have had great success are open to new experiences, conscientious and disagreeable. Hmm. And so like, I'll just kind of notice that, right? Maybe I'm reading an article in a psychology magazine about this. And I'll just be like, as I'm reading the article, I'm like, hmm, maybe, maybe founders are more disagreeable than agreeable. And then I'll just reach out to, you know, uh, Michael Seibel or Mark Andreessen or some of these guys and just say, hey, I've been thinking about disagreeableness. Does anything jump out at you? And then a lot of times they'll say, oh my gosh, totally. And then they'll give examples or they'll be, I'm reading on this topic too. And so, you know, I, I just tend to um, go down these rabbit holes of where I'm curious. Hmm. And, and and then usually they lead you somewhere that's kind of interesting. You, you, you know, where... No, Mike, yeah. you mentioned Big Five. I, I just researched because I took this a few years ago. Can I read you my results and just say what if I walked in your room, what you would say? Sure. Yeah. Yep. Extroversion 33, emotional stability 62, agreeableness 11, conscientiousness 72, intellect imagination 95. Okay. That's so that's um, you know, now we've got to be careful because you you can you can over rotate to believe in this stuff. 100 percent I'm yeah, believe uh, me, I'm, I'm not I'm not I, holding you or this test Eddie. Yeah, but I would say that 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 what you're describing lends itself pretty well to entrepreneurship because okay. like openness to new experiences is an openness to be willing to embrace new ideas to sort of say the default assumption is that the way we're doing things doesn't have to be the best way. People who are open to new experiences tend to value aesthetics. They tend to value, they, with their conversations, they enjoy engaging 
in the realm of ideas. Whereas like, not everybody's like that. My wife, for example, is much more interested in what makes a person tick mm-hmm. than I am when they're in a conversation. And, and not in a cynical way, that's just what animates her interest in people. Whereas like, when I'm having a conversation with somebody, and perhaps you're this way too, I'm really interested in what new ideas do they have. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in kind of stress testing their ideas and them stress testing mine. And like, there, there's an aesthetic aspect to ideas for me mm-hmm. and for a lot of founders. The conscientiousness high is good because you got to see projects through, right? Great artists ship. And so you have to, you have to have an ethos of not just getting caught in your head, but like making things happen in the real world. This is an area of struggle for me and probably why I'm better suited to be an investor than a operator because I can get lost in something. I'll start reading about some framework and I'll just get lost in it for five hours. Mm-hmm. Most of the great entrepreneurs I know have a, have an urgency of making progress and an execution tempo that they insist upon maintaining. They're mm-hmm. fast in their email inbox. They're m- more more here and now than I am. And, and I'd like to be better about it. And then I'd say that, uh, you know, the agreeableness versus disagreeableness. I think that uh, disagreeableness is generally speaking a benefit as long as you're not just totally a jerk. Yeah. Because disagreeableness, you know, if you have to, if you have to make everybody happy or you have to preserve harmony or you have to protect how you're viewed by other people, how you appear in this world, you sacrifice freedom because you're acting in ways that are aligned with other people's interests rather than the interests that you have in your own mission or your own thing that you want to bring about as change in the world. Hmm. And disagreeableness buys freedom. It buys freedom of action and pure movement towards the different future of your design. Whereas I would say agreeableness works really well in bigger companies because you want to, you want all the people on the team marching in the same direction. You want to have your competitive advantages persist for a very long time. You want to build defensible moats. You want to create a franchise. And so it's just, just different temperamentally. And a lot of times this is why startup founders, when their companies get acquired by big companies, they just can't wait to be fully vested so they can get out of there because they just like the idea of managing the politics and make everybody feel happy about what needs to happen. is just like soul crushing to them. (laughs) Right. Mike, where did you develop this level of self-awareness? I don't know. You know, I just, uh, I guess just lucky, I guess. Hmm. What about just analyzing yourself? Has there been a mindset of yours besides reckless optimism that you think has just had a monumental impact on your life and has been with you for a long time? I think that that I've always been very curious. And so, um, you know, the the strength in my weakness, right, of not always getting back to people's emails quick enough or not always being present enough is that like, if I get interested in a notion, like I'll just like, I'll go like ridiculously far down the rabbit hole. Walk me through uh, that learning process. Yeah. So like, like for example, Twitch gets bought in 2014 for 970 million and it had started as an investment in Justin.tv, which was a terrible idea. And then they pivoted into two companies, Twitch and Social Cam. And, and Twitch didn't even make sense to me at first. And then we have this big exit, 970 million. We make 84 times our money on the investment. And I'm like, what business am I even in? Like, is this just... Nassim Taleb talks about the lucky fool. I'm like, if I just been a lucky fool, Twitter and Chegg both went public within a week of each other in 2013. And both of them have been massive pivots. And so I'm like, what, what am I doing? Hmm. And it's like, and if, if this is all just about luck, then I should just retire before I get exposed because, you know, what luck giveth luck can take it away. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm either just a lucky fool or there's something happening here that I don't fully understand. Maybe instinctively I made some good bets without fully understanding why I made them. And so I spent about two years talking to breakthrough founders and trying to understand what was it that animated the breakthrough. And, and you know, I would, you know, I'd go to somebody like, say, Mark Pincus at Zynga, and I'd say, okay, uh, when you pitched me, this is what you pitched but I, I don't recall that that was the game that took off. So can you tell me, can you explain to me like what happened? 
what you don't want to do is ask, why do you think you were so successful? Because people come up with stories about why they're successful, right? It's easy to misremember what really happened. What you're trying to do is get as objective as you can. You're trying to say, what did the pitch look like in the seed round? And what did it look like in the A round? And what was different? And when did the business start to inflect? And what was the thing that happened that caused that to inflect? What were the surprises that you encountered that were positive surprises? What were the surprises that were negative surprises? And so you're trying to be sort of like um, Joe Colombo detective. And for me, this topic was just like insanely interesting. Because like, if you look at startup frameworks, they tend to emphasize not failing. They tend to say startups fail because they don't have a business model. So you need a business model canvas. Startups fail because they don't have a customer. So you need to do customer development. Startups fail because they do waterfall development. So you should do lean development. I agree with all those things. I agree that all of those things can mitigate the chance of failure, but it doesn't explain why Twitter did pretty much none of those things and was massively successful. So I'm like, okay, what are these things underlying these powerful startups that gave them their power? Not only the things that you want to do to avoid failure, but what are the things that could signal this is worth pursuing because it might lead to massive success? And so as I spent more and more time with these founders, I don't know where the epiphany came from, but I was like, oh, it's the inflections and the insight. That's what they had. Mm. Google, there was like 30 search engines when they came out. But if you look at it through the lens of insights, which was PageRank, there was only one. Yeah. When you realize, oh, that's what I'm evaluating when I invest. I'm not evaluating the product necessarily. I'm evaluating the insight and the inflections and then the capabilities of the founder to change the future. Mm. And I can, I can get comfortable with the idea that I don't know how it's going to play out in the future. How hard was but, that for you to learn? Not as hard for me to learn, but I'm like, um, I guess I have a very high tolerance for ambiguity. Okay. And that's probably part of why I'm good at going down yeah. these rabbits because <laughs> I like, I don't, you know, you can't, Breakthrough ideas come from pursuing something that you're just incredibly interested in for its own sake. Because if you're pursuing something that somebody else is interested in or a job that somebody else assigned to you, you might deliver a great deliverable, but it's very unlikely that you'll come up with a breakthrough, right? You come up with breakthroughs by pursuing an idea that nobody else thinks is important as you think it is. And, and so therefore you push the frontiers of knowledge and you, it's like a fractal. You go down a new fractal and then you, bam, you open up an entire world of new understanding. And then you, then it becomes addictive. You, you're, you just go faster and faster because you're like, oh my gosh, I'm seeing things that now all of a sudden what I was blind to now I'm seeing, now I see it. Yeah. And so then, and then now you have a language to talk to other founders. I can go back to Brian Chesky. I can go back to Mark Pincus. I can go back to Justin Kahn and say, hey, I think that maybe the thing that powered Justin TV was these inflections. And he's like, dude, that's right. And he's like, and the ones you listed are only three of them, but there was this. And if you thought of this, and if you thought of this, then you start to talk to your team about the terms. And you know, the having a language to describe the new set of things can be valuable because then people use that language and it teases out more examples and, yeah. and stress tests the thinking a little mm -hmm. bit. I'm just thinking about that natural curiosity you have and then some of the impressive people that you've been in the same room with again and again. Who are the people using your language really pushed the frontiers of your knowledge? Let's see. Oh, there's so many. I'm uh, looking for those rare few that you're like, whoa, what the hell just happened there? I would say that uh, Reed Hoffman was very helpful in the early days in helping me understand the value of thinking about a problem in a very first principles way and thinking about how we're going to get distribution and how important distribution is in almost every startup. Most people think the product's the most important thing, but if you can't get your product to the people that you want to get it to, you fail, right? So you have to get distribution regardless of what business you're in, if it's B2B, B2C, whatever. So I would say Reed Hoffman really had a strong handle on startups. And he really had a strong handle on how do you think about the startup as a set of 
investment theses, if you will, that the entrepreneur should have an investment thesis. The entrepreneur is making a risky bet on an uncertain future. And so they should be clear or they should think in bets and be clear about that. Another person who helped me think this way was Annie Duke, who wrote a book called Thinking in Bets. And how do you separate the, the decision quality from the outcome? And how do you document your knowledge about the decision you were making so that you can evaluate, you, you don't make the mistake of resulting. You don't just say, hey, I was a genius investor in 2020 because I bought Bitcoin. Because the only thing you know is that Bitcoin went up in 2020. You don't know that it was a good decision. You may have just been lucky. And so the only way you know it was a good decision is if you capture your thought process and then you can go back to it and say, does the thought process I had, did it comprehend the right way to navigate the uncertainties that ensued? Yeah. Uh, so she, helpful. She was really good. And then it, I'd say those two, and then Steve Blank, Steve Blank and Eric Reese. So I got to know them really early, right? Before they got famous. I used to go, I used to help Steve Blank in his class that he taught at Berkeley and Stanford. Why? And Steve, well, so it was funny because I, I moved to California from Austin and uh, everybody's telling me there's this guy named Steve Blank who's a really smart marketing guy and I'd heard about him. So I reach out to him and I explain who I am and stuff. And, you know, at this time, I, I hadn't really done VC yet. I just moved from Austin. I'd been an entrepreneur. And he says, hey, yeah, I'd like to have breakfast with you tomorrow. And I was like, wow, that's kind of, that was really responsive. So we're having breakfast. And I say, hey, why don't I explain my background? Why I want to reach out? He goes, oh, no, I know your background. I teach the motive case in my class. And so the, the motive was the company I'd started. And Harvard Business School did a case on how we went to market. And Steve said, you're the only case I've ever seen where the startup team did customer development without knowing that they were, you know, you did it by instinct, yeah. but that's what you guys were doing. And so I teach that case as an example of customer development. So will you come with me to the class? That's why I met awesome. with you for breakfast because I want you to come to my class. So I was like, okay. And what he would do is kind of funny. He'd have me sit in the back of the room and, and the, the, basically, the premise of the case is we don't have software yet, but I'm charging customers $50,000 to be part of our early access program. And it's like a few months have gone by, nobody's signed the check yet. And should I cave in and say, hey, you can use it for free or you can do a free pilot or whatever. And at the end of the case, I'm like, no, I'm going to stick to my guns and charge 50000 And so Steve would ask the class, how many of you think Mike Maples is a genius? For doing this, raise your hand. And how many of you think he's an idiot? And usually more people raise their hand thinking I'm an idiot. And then he would say, well, why don't we ask Mike to explain what happened himself? And I'd be sitting in the back of the room and I'd just walk down after all these people had their hands up saying I'm an idiot. <laughs> and then we would just talk about what happened and what, what the learnings were. Mm. But, but like Steve has played a very important role in us understanding entrepreneurship, right? Like that, you know, people didn't really study business as a discipline until the early 20th century. And in the early 20th century, you had Harvard Business School and they were trying to be the West Point of capitalism, right? Somebody had to figure out how do I run these big train companies or how do I run DuPont or how do I run Ford or nobody had seen companies of this size before. And so they were trying to be the West Point of capitalism. And so from that, a whole bunch of, theories about business emerged. Michael Porter's five forces and core competencies and activity-based costing and all kinds of different management frameworks and all this. What Steve understood was that a startup isn't a company. And so that people were mistakenly force-fitting business frameworks for corporations onto startups. They were saying, you should have a business plan. They were saying, you should have a VP of marketing, a VP of sales, a VP of this, a VP of that. Steve's like, no, that's not true at all. A startup is a temporary organization searching for a business model, hoping to one day become a company. And so the way a startup creates value is totally different from the way a company creates value. And so that insight was really profound. And from that flows a whole bunch of logical conclusions that you need to navigate the uncertainty of a startup, which means you apply the scientific method to a series of experiments that you run to validate a set of hypotheses that you're not certain about or to invalidate hypotheses 
And so from that flowed all of these things that he did with customer development. And then Eric Reese was his protege in many ways. And so Eric took a lot of the ideas of customer development and applied it to this notion of the lean startup. But, you know, that was the first time anybody had ever asserted that entrepreneurship education was a different field than business education. Mm. And now I think that that's starting to become more widely recognized, that we're, we're at the beginning of infinity of understanding how startups really ought to work or how they do work. And that's, that's just super interesting to me. Yeah. What's super interesting to me is you mentioned moving from Austin to California, no real venture investing prior to that. What made you think you could do this? Well, I, I wasn't really sure. It's just that I was in Austin and I saw what was happening with, at the time they were calling it Web 2.0. And I was like, man, I got to get to San Francisco. That's where it's happening. This is going to, it's time to get the party started again on the internet. This is where, this is where it's going to be. Was there something specific you saw that you said, this is it? A lot of things. Okay. You know, I started to see podcasting. I started to see BitTorrent. I started to see um, Flickr. What was happening was that the web was transitioning from being interconnected pages to being a platform mm. and a platform that connects apps and people. And I was like, okay, that's wildly interesting. And then, you know, I went to the O'Reilly Web 2.0 Summit and saw O'Reilly talking about, you know, data is the intel inside and mashups and remixing things. And all I was like, oh my gosh, like there's going to be a new internet. And I'm in Austin, Texas, which is a great place to live, but it's not where it's going to happen. It's going to happen in San Francisco. I came up to San Francisco without a job. I would, my kids were still in school, so I would fly up every Sunday night and stay till Thursday. And just the goal was to find something exciting in Web 2.0. And I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't have a preconceived notion. I talked to some venture firms to see if I could get a job in venture, but I wasn't, I wasn't convinced that that was going to work, right? And in the course of doing that, I kept noticing that people were raising less and less money to fund their startups. They, they, they didn't want to raise 5 million. They wanted to raise 500,000. And I was like, huh, that's, that's curious. Why is that? And that, that's when I started to see that you had this thing called the LAMP stack where you had Linux and Apache and MySQL and PHP and you had um, this ability to experiment for radically less cost than in book. It cost me five million, or cost our team at Motive $5 million just to build a product. But now you could build one for 500,000, get traction. And so then I, I was like, man, 500,000 is the new 5 million. And then that's kind of what got me down this path of uh, starting a seed farm. Hmm. Was there that inner belief prior to it? Or did that belief come after some of these successful exits? It was the inner belief prior to, it was completely obvious to me that the, the way that startups were going to get built was going to change. Hmm. That in a world where you can prove or disprove a product idea for less than half a million dollars, that was going to be a game-changing difference. Yeah. What, and, yeah. What are those shifts you're feeling right now? What are the spidey sense attuned to? Yeah, you know, it's, um, well, the tricky part now is there's over 2,000 seed funds, right? So yeah. like... I first started doing this, people didn't think seed funds were going to be a thing. They didn't think they were going to work. They didn't think that seed funds would ever fund the companies that mattered. By 2010, nobody just debated that, right? By 2010, Steve Anderson over at Baseline had invested in Instagram, might have invested in Twitter and Twitch and a bunch of companies that were Okta. Nobody questions anymore that seed funds were going to be a thing. But the problem is there weren't that many barriers to entry to starting a seed fund because by definition, they're small. So next thing you knew, they were everywhere. And so a lot of what I'm working on today is trying to predict who's going to be a good founder before they start their startups. I say to entrepreneurs, you have to force a choice and not a comparison. What do you mean So like, uh, So like if, if, if the incumbents are selling apples, you don't show up and say, I'm a 10 times better apple. You show up with a banana. And you say, I'm the first banana that's ever been. Yeah. And if you like apples better than my banana, okay, that's your choice. But like, nobody's going to say, how does that compare to my Right? They're going to say, I either value banananess or I don't. And like I say to a startup founder, what you want to be is a banana and then find all the people who value the advantage of a banana and they'll be desperate for that advantage because they have no alternative. Mm -hmm. And if they have an alternative, they won't be desperate. Only if they don't have alternatives will they be desperate for your advantage, for your insight, right? And so I'm like saying this to entrepreneurs, 
and I'm one of 2,000 seed funds. And I'm like, that makes me a hypocrite. Because if, if I'm just being one of the 10 usual suspects that an entrepreneur pitches, I'm playing the comparison game. I'm doing the exact same thing I tell entrepreneurs not to do. Yeah. So what I decided was that I'm going to try to find these founders before they start their startups, get to know them, and then have these frameworks to help them stress test their ideas. It's not my job to have an idea, but I can ask you really good questions to help you decide whether you think it's worth pursuing or not. Some ideas that sound plausibly good aren't that good. Some ideas that sound stupid might be stupid, but they're still worth pursuing because they have powerful inflections and you're following an interesting insight. And so what I've learned is that that's how I can force a choice and not a comparison because Mm -hmm. by the time they have an idea, I can say, look, you can go pitch 10 firms if you want, but like, I just have a question for you. Do you want to work together? And it's like, if we want to work together, let's figure out how to do that. Hmm. But like, what good is it going to do you to go pitch 10 firms and you're going to get to know all of them for two hours if you're lucky. And we already know what it's like to work together. And why don't we come up with a deal that makes us equally unhappy? Like it'll be a little bit higher price than I want, a little bit lower price than you want, but let's just get on with life and abandon the pretense of posturing or any of that nonsense. Yeah. Mike, this makes me think of, uh, do you know who Greg Popovich is, the San Antonio Spurs coach? I know of him. Yeah, so one of the greatest coaches of all time. And this makes me think of Tim Duncan, NBA Hall of Famer. And when he was thinking of drafting Tim Duncan, Tim Duncan, I'm pretty sure is from Barbados. Greg Popovich flies down there, stays in his home for four days, doesn't mention the word basketball one time. All he was trying to do was uncover the underlying ways this guy operates in the world. That story just always stuck with me. So I'm thinking for you, Popovich. Yeah, and sorry, not to interrupt you, but like, please do that because like, I, I spend a lot of time in the realm of going down the rabbit hole of recruiting. Like like Coach K, how does he recruit basketball players at Duke? Sam Hinkie, yeah. how did he arbitrage his understanding of good players when he built the 76ers? If, if you go down the path of what's going to make a great founder, you start to cover some of the same intellectual territory that you would cover if you wanted to find LeBron James in high school. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, you, you kind of go down that area. So, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, anything you say is going to be 10 times more fascinating and interesting than what, what's going to come out of my mouth here, Mike. But I, I'm wondering, so Popovich has top of funnel. He's got college basketball, high school basketball. You said these people that you're looking at now have never started the company. So for you, what are you, how are you even getting introduced to these people? Yeah, it kind of depends. A lot of times the founders I work with will introduce me to other founders. So that's like one of the, one of the unfair advantages that you get in venture if you have some success early is that you get better deal flow because people think you know something, but you also get better deal flow because you the, the founders that succeed know a bunch of people who are really good. Hmm. And so they they start to send them your way, right? So like when I was working with Kevin Rose at Dig, he's the one who introduced me to Neil Young at NG Moco, right? Which ended up having a really good exit. And then the other thing that you learn if you're involved with really good companies, you get a lot of proprietary insight, right? So like, there were a lot of people who, who were saying to me, Twitter is not going to do real-time search. And I'm like, eh, I, I, don't think, I don't think you're right. I think, I think they are going to do real-time search. It's because, because I know something yeah. when it relates to that topic, right? So you get, you also get a lot of proprietary insight when you're working. With, let's imagine that you're on the board of a box. Well, it'd be interesting to ask Aaron Levy, what types of files are being stored on box? that are growing the most. Hmm. And let's say that the answer to that is corporate videos. I'm just making this up. You would have an insight about the future. Now an entrepreneur walks into your office and says, I'm using AI to do corporate videos faster. You're like, "Hmm, Hmm. that's the biggest growing file type out there. You start to draw connections that you might not have ordinarily drawn. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So that's kind of what you're trying to do. And you're trying to do the same with people, right? And you're trying to, um, you, you know, the other thing has to do with the types of questions that you ask. And so um, I'll ask questions like, um, tell me something that you practice at a lot. Uh, because if somebody practices something a lot, and I don't care what it is, playing the piano, art, a sport of some sort where they're trying to get meaningfully better, that means they have an ethos of compounding. That means that they're likely to grow in their job. That means that they're likely to be much better in the future than they are even now. Or, you know, I'll ask, um, 
what's a project of your own that you did just because it was interesting to you when you were young? So you try to, you, you try to understand what makes them tick. And then I try to understand what unresolved differences they have with the world where they picked on in high school. So someday I'll show you guy who picked on me. I'm going to be captain of the industry. You'll see. So there's sort of, you're trying to, you're trying to understand them in a very sort of fundamental way. Do all of those underlying motivations, do they have to come from, let's call it a negative space? You're being fueled by anger, resentment, something like that. Or is there... I think it's a combination, right? I think there's positive and negative emotions, right? But I do think that you have to, you know, startups are impossible and you have to be so in love with the mission that you'll never give up. Yeah. But you also have to, I I believe it's helpful to have unfinished business with the world because like then your temperament becomes such that you just, you, you just can't even fathom failing. Yeah. Right. You just like you just can't even imagine a world where you fail and you're just like, I'm going to do do what it takes to MacGyver my way to success. Yeah, I, I would say 90 percent of the people that I've worked with are more from the negative space Two of the people that I can never get out of my head, though. Roger Federer, a true artist on the court and how he approaches his craft, how he approaches it just has always stuck with me being so pulled by love and beauty of the game. And then also Brunello Cuccinelli, the legendary fashion designer. Obviously, he came from an incredibly poor background, but he seems so pulled towards the future. Yeah. And most of the founders that I work with are more that way. You know, it's funny. Most founders that I work with who start great startups, they do it for aesthetic reasons. They believe that the their aesthetic view of the future is superior hmm. to the present aesthetic. And so they, you know, disruption in some ways is an unfortunate word, you know, like the Logan and John, when they did Lyft, they weren't like deaf to taxis. They were just like, ride sharings would be awesome. Yeah. And so like, you know, the the founders that I work with who I've had the best results with usually come from a place of wanting to create abundance. And they come from a place of, um, you know, want, wanting to actualize an aesthetically better future. Hmm. So always think about that better future. We're going to wrap up here in a minute, but I'm thinking about that better future for your kids. What type of lessons have you tried to show them over all these years? I guess a couple of things. One is we talked about this a little bit already, but none of us knows how long we're going to have. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we have any time is a miracle. And so honor the gift of your time every day because it won't last forever. And in fact, the day won't last beyond the day. Mm-hmm. But then the other thing is because we get to live at all, because we get to honor the gift of our time at all, it helps to be optimistic about the future, right? It helps to like view the world in a glass half full way because you got to live another day. And there's a lot of forces in this world that conspire to make you pessimistic about the human condition or what's going to happen or things like that. And I just think that optimism is a better way to go through life. You don't want to be delusionally optimistic, but believing that you can change things for the better, I think is a better sort of, um, is a better way to show up in the world Mm. that not believing you can. Yeah, that's awesome. So those are the main thing. And then, and then the other, most of it too, is to honor the gift of your time. Don't, Don't try to do anything like how I did it. Don't try to, don't try to emulate anything. In fact, don't even have any heroes. Having heroes is a symptom of immaturity. You could admire the traits of certain people but your job is not to be like anybody. Your job is to be the best version of you that you can be. Yeah. And there's only one you, right? And so if you're your best self, you'll be impossible to compete with. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, that's that. That's the other thing is, is uh, you know, lean into the idea of being your best self and don't apologize for it. Don't wish you were something that you're not. Yeah. That kind of thing. I love that. Like final one, you're so curious. Say you could do this. Long form interview, sit down with anyone dead or alive. Who would you love to spend an evening with? Um, Jesus. Mm. And not, not for the reasons that some people might think. I'm not super religious, but Jesus had a philosophy that was really interesting that I think is lost on a lot of people. And, and this has nothing to do with whether you believe everything that's in the Bible or not, right? Jesus basically proposed the idea of unconditional love, right? Like, so before, 
Before Jesus, whenever you have conflict, there's kind of this Rene Girardian sort of sacrifice ritual where somebody would be sacrificed and blamed for the tension. And then they, once they're sacrificed, there's this big release and there's harmony again. What Jesus said by sacrificing himself, Jesus exposed the myth of sacrifice as a way to have harmony. And he exposed the injustice of not respecting the rights of people. And so what did his philosophy emphasize? The first thing that it emphasized was loving yourself, understanding that you have a right to exist for its own sake. And that a lot of times people get upset because they don't believe in themselves or they feel disrespected or they feel self-conscious. And then the second thing is unconditional love of the other. And so like, let's say you're in a relationship and you do something and the, the other person doesn't like it, they start to complain. Well, te it's tempting to say, why are you such a complainer? But like, if you unconditionally love the other person, you wouldn't say that because you're not helping them by saying that. You're not helping anybody. So what you would say instead is like, look, somehow we got crossways here. Let's just go backwards because like we have unconditional love for each other. So like, it's crazy that we would fight over this. Like, let's figure out how to fix this. But I'm going to assume that you are showing up in good faith. You assume I'm showing up in good faith. And then the third is own your own behavior. So when you make a mistake, you say, hey, this is how I would have handled it differently. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to expect you to apologize. I'm not going to like, I have enough regard for myself that when I make a mistake, I can just own my own behavior. And it doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with what you're willing to do or not do. And so like, when you think about it, most conflicts that happen between people, it's, I find it's either they, they lost sight of their self-regard, they lost sight of unconditional love for the other, or they wouldn't own their own behavior because they expected somebody else to do something before they did. And I find that when I return to that as a way of thinking about stuff, that it helps me a lot. I would have liked to have talked to him yeah. About that, right? I think I think he would have had some interesting ideas about that, and but I would have I would have liked to have talked to him like in the realm of philosophy, not in the realm of is there an afterlife, or yeah. the, more in the realm of like how should relationships work, and how was the how had the paradigm of the way societies worked up until that point been broken, and how could it be improved? Hmm. Mike Maples Jr., this has been one that I've been looking forward to for a long, long time. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. Where do you want the listeners staying connected with you and everything that you guys are doing at Floodgate? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, uh, www.floodgate.com is our website. My Twitter is uh, at M2JR. And then my podcast is uh, Starting Greatness. So a lot, a lot of the stuff we talked about today is kind of the themes of the podcast, right? Like, what is it? What was it like when a company was in zero to one? that ultimately had a breakthrough. What can we learn from the things that they got right? We have some pretty good guests on the show. Well, you have some amazing guests, but then you dive so specifically on certain tactics for shorter episodes, which are just incredibly impactful for any entrepreneur. So yeah, I think the podcast is exceptional. So really good work there. Hey, well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun and it's like it plays into, it plays into some of the things I know about, right? Like I can ask certain things of the founders that it wouldn't be as obvious for somebody who hasn't invested in startups. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a fun group of people to work with for sure. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today and we'll got you there. All right. Thanks for having me. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.